Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crimecast, a briefing featuring the latest news, analysis, and guidance from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Spoda-Kindle, VP of Product Development with ACFCS, and on this episode, we're exploring how to fight Frankenstein. Well, Frankenstein fraud, anyway. Another name for the rapidly growing scourge of synthetic ID fraud. It's not a new issue, but synthetics continue to be an immense challenge for financial institutions, responsible for tens of billions of losses. Increasingly, synthetic ID fraud is also connected with other areas of financial crime, like money mules and fraud connected to pandemic relief. Our guide today is Gina Jerva, manager of the corporate and government enterprise content platform for the Thomson Reuters Institute. Gina works on solutions to some of the world's most pressing fraud issues, uh, ranging from anti-money laundering, e-commerce fraud, healthcare fraud, and risk and regulatory compliance writ large. Prior to Thomson Reuters, she spent a combined 11 years as a deputy district attorney, as well as running her own legal practice. She's joined by Lucane Hunsinger, vice president of product development with Feedseye, a data science company focused on detecting fraud for financial institutions. With more than a decade of experience in the financial services industry, Lucane has tackled fraud and financial crime in roles at FIS, Global, BA Systems, Kapersky Labs, among others. Uh, We're thrilled to have them both join us. I'm going to kick it over to Gina to start the conversation. Gina, thank you so much for being here. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Great. Well, thank you so much, Brian, and thank you to ACFCS and everybody for joining us for this podcast. Um, It's a really important conversation that we're going to have about synthetic identity fraud. And a couple of things we're going to get to, you know, we're going to identify synthetic identity fraud. I I think there's been a lot written about it. Some of you may have heard about it in the past. So we're just going to break it down for you, um, give you some overview of just what it is, fake persons, fake businesses. What do you need to know? Um, We're going to talk about how fraudsters have been using synthetic identity fraud to really capitalize um, on the COVID-19 pandemic. And then we're going to talk about ways that financial institutions and other organizations can mitigate synthetic identity fraud risk by using some technology and tools. And joining me to talk about that today is my friend, Lucane Hunziker. He is the Vice President of Solutions Product Management for Feedseye. He is definitely a subject matter expert in this space, um, in the areas of financial crime and risk. He has over 17 years experience in financial services and software industries. In addition, he's held corporate advisory roles pertaining to cybersecurity, cyber-enabled crime and risk. And he has also guest starred on several Thomson Reuters podcasts and webinars that I've moderated in the past. So it is a great pleasure to have you here with me today with him. Thank you. Thank you, Jeannie. And thank you to the uh, ACFCS organization for having me as well. Excited to be here. Well, great. Okay. Well, I'm excited to talk about this. I mean, synthetic identity fraud is one of the fastest growing financial crimes in the United States. It has become an increasing concern for regulators as banks are struggling to find sort of common ways of tackling this really innovative theft technique that, as I said before, it, you know, it combines real and fictitious data about individuals. And I've heard it called Frankenstein fraud. Um, so in basic terms, Lucane, what is synthetic identity fraud? How does it happen? And why exactly are we referring to it as Frankenstein fraud? 
<laughs> and that that is certainly a uh, a good term to look at it because uh, essentially you, you were franken hacking together several elements that make up uh, an identity when it comes to either uh, joining you could say the financial services world such as uh, launching an account starting a credit card or even um, applying for business loans etc that that we saw with the uh, PPP loan process but in the most basic statement a synthetic identity is created by using a combination of real information such as a legitimate social security number uh, tax ID number etc uh, and fictitious information which could include uh, a false name uh, address or date of birth and there's a couple different variations to it and each one presents its own layer of complexity so synthetic identities can have a couple different forms based on what I just said so there is the traditional based synthetic identity that I just mentioned that has some element of truth to it meaning that the social security number could be real and the name altered with a different date of birth or uh, any other the combination I just mentioned, right? Right, right, date of birth and name, but wrong SSN. Now, those got increasingly difficult to work. Um, you could say prior to the social security number uh, randomizing social, sec sorry, the social security administration randomizing social security numbers. Uh, so essentially what that, um, created was a system where the the sequence of numbers provided to that identifying numbers didn't necessarily match up to a specific date a specific state or a specific uh, batch of you could say births added to the roles now all of this information was completely uh, randomized which from a uh, security standpoint certainly makes sense uh, you you can avoid the traps of guessing large blocks of information contained within you know specific digits so that led to the rise of the pure um, manufactured synthetic identity wherein all of these elements um, essentially are falsified and that user as it presents itself to the institution or to where they're trying to gain access essentially looks like either a a new or light thin credit file or in the example of the business maybe a business that has just been recently incorporated or um, registered for that uh, in that state's uh, business registry. Got it. So I like so that, I think that makes sense in terms of the Frankenstein piece, right? So it's uh, using different parts of personal identifying information to create a persona, which is fake. Is that would that be an accurate statement? That's exactly it. Or a business, of course. Of course. So then who is, when we think about this, I mean, it's a scary proposition. Who is at the greatest risk of becoming a victim of synthetic identity fraud? Yeah, so synthetic identity frauds are typically targeted towards, um, uh, we see the, the most, you could say, uses towards the uh, financial um, financial institutions that, that we tend to deal with as our clients, meaning the typical attack would um, present itself as a new persona, like I mentioned before, combining different pieces of PII. The problem in the profile of that applicant is that they do tend to look legitimate. Um, they tend to circumvent traditional fraud controls. And then once on the books, um, the fraudsters tend to tip, transact normally, right? So they're even paying down credit lines or trying to establish 
you could say a regular history in the carding space, looking like a good customer, taking and then ultimately doing like a bust out, something where they rapidly charge up and then exit the institution. Some of those behaviors take multiple years, um, one, to build up the profile, but also expand the rings of, of activity within the institution. And while I use a credit card example, it's certainly not in any way, shape or form limited to that. I would say those who are most at risk would be um, entities that need to trust a digital facing application for that person to be who they say they are. Um, that can take a lot of different terms. It could be an auto loan. It could be an installment loan against the boat, et cetera. But essentially, we're talking to something of value that can be exfiltrated and ultimately cashed out. Right. And where, when we think of the criminals who are utilizing this form of fraud, where are they getting the data that creates these fake personas, fake businesses? Well, certainly, um, I mean, not to, not to beat a dead horse here, but um, the, the amount of data breaches and the scale of cross-channel records that have been released, and uh, I think it's rapidly approaching the tens of billions um, since 2013-ish. But essentially what that means is there, there's no shortage of information to pull from. And when I say records, I mean beyond just like your, your username and account for websites, I mean, health data breaches, websites, uh, you know, airlines, et cetera. All of these different sources carry an extraordinary amount of information uh, about you. And there is a simple fact that um, <clears throat> that that level of information just creates just so much more noise, you could say, in the ecosystem. There's also packages, you could say, to do this um, that are available to, to criminal, via criminal enterprises almost as a service. Um, people talk about the dark web all the time, but this, this, this is true. You can get these packaged as a service. I believe um, identities that are cultured or right now, something I saw, are selling anywhere between four, four to twenty dollars. I think an identity up to a to a more appropriate level one for a higher, you could say, level of, of credit application, higher higher level of reward, but also higher risk. Um, that was that was just released recently as well. So. So one, you can either look for it yourself. Um, there's, there's certainly no shortage of information out there. Um, if you're, uh, you could say a, 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 a small, you could say small level crookster, you could certainly find that information by stealing trash. You could say out of your apartment area, or you could just outsource the whole thing to someone else who is uh, already has the data and is willing to take a cut of the attack on the institution that you direct them to. Right. So it sounds like there's there's an old school method. You could go digging through the trash, right? The physical part of it, um, which we've I've heard about, of course. But then like with the dark web, you're saying if you go on this, you know, dark web of market, this marketplace of the dark web and these identities are selling from anywhere to four, you're saying like four to twenty dollars or so per identity. You know, if you if you get if you if you buy those in bulk, right, and, and you sell them. I'm sorry, if you use them, if you buy them in bulk and use them, then you are essentially your ROI um, would right. be quite high, right? Because of what you could get out of it. It's quite high, right? And you have to think about it this at scale, right? Like like most successful organized crime rings or, or anything, um, the, the success comes with repetition, right? Obviously, there are low-hanging fruits that uh, would probably be excluded from the application process. But um, especially if you're creating, again, a lot of noise through a bot attack or something like that, 
there's a good chance that a certain percentage of those applications or those submissions will get through because, again, they do look like beginning credit files, um, could also be a, portrayed as a student or uh, a new immigration status, et cetera. There's a lot of ways um, to try and make this look normal. And sure. something else to consider as well is there's always a shock and awe type of example that we'll read about in the papers or, or, or in the media. But a lot of these are not trying to do that. Again, they're trying to go in at lower dollar amounts, five, like credit credit lines between $500 to, to $1,500, and then establish that pattern of that behavior. So it's ironic uh, because you hear this about this all the time in software development and, and software companies, but it's it's almost like a, a bastardized land and expand type of approach when they get entry into that financial institution. Yeah, and it's hitting, it's it's really impacting, when we think about how it's impacting consumers, it's vulnerable members of the population. So if it's students who are just trying to establish credit, um, you know, uh, recent immigrants who may not know that this is happening to them. I mean, I think that's, that what, that's what worries me, just, you know, what keeps me up at night on a personal level is thinking about that. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, according to the Federal Reserve, synthetic identity fraud costs U.S. lenders about roughly $6 billion in a single year. And, you know, the, what the studies are saying, the average charge is about 15000 and this was in 2016. So with that in mind, that's a lot of fraud. Why is synthetic identity fraud so hard for banks to detect? Sure. So I'll start, I'll start a couple of different ways here. So um, well, one is that the traditional way of verifying identity, at least in, in North America, in the U.S., let's just use us as an example, is that you as an institution would traditionally pull down in a very large, massive batch file some sort of bureau credit updating service. Now, um, traditionally, and this is from my past views, those were done at, at a very large scale um, infrequently. So that I think is something that has kind of allowed this exploitation to, to start to grow. But you, when you pair that along with one, the, the growth and the number of new ways to open accounts with, with one, without ever having to see somebody face to face, two, the fact that there is a large rush, you could say, in, um, in, in trying to understand how to aggregate that bureau and identity data. And I'm, I'm sure we've all seen the rise in point solution identity providers trying trying to solve for this. But I think the biggest thing and why it's so hard is while you're trying to figure out whether or not someone is, you could say, credit worthy or trustworthy, again, through your normal application process, you're also trying to balance that with your, your existence to make a profit and delight your customers as a business. So it's a very age old balance in security, whether in risk mitigation, whether it's financial or cybersecurity, what's the balance of friction that either your customer, and I think about it as my client's customer, account holder customer, who's trying to transact, how much um, you could say are they willing to be impacted by knowing that on the back end, we're trying to protect the institution and ultimately passing on higher charges to them or to society uh, it's balancing out. It can be really hard because I'm sure we've all been in that embarrassing situation where maybe your card's been declined or something's happened um, that, that's out of sorts and you had to take that moment to contact your institution. Um, that can really negatively uh, impact, you could say, that, that stickiness factor with your 
account holders and customers if you become too onerous and put too many barriers in the way for your account or customers to transact. That's really been the, the age-old balance of instead of trying to rely on disparate information and really putting up a lot of obstacles that might you know, block my customers from being able to transact, um, we might want to pursue those after the fact. So I would say it's a combination of a lot of, you could say, uh, perfect storms. It's, it's the breach of records I have mentioned. It's the social security randomization. It's um, the growth in digital base non-physical transacting types to, to grow your presence in the, in the financial world. Right, and, and I, I agree with what, what you're saying. I think the idea of a frictionless, a frictionless experience, like myself as a consumer, mm -hmm. that is what I want. But I also don't want uh, you know, fraud committed on my account. So where is that mm -hmm. balance? Um, and I agree with you. I think we've all had that experience where we've made a purchase on a credit card somewhere, whether it's online or in a store, and mm -hmm. you know the credit card gets flagged for some reason because it's not within the normal usage of your credit card. Yes, that's that's a, you know that can be an annoying experience, but I, at the same time, I'm also very grateful when that happens because it does mean that my financial institution's paying attention. Um, right, and I think I think one thing to add to your listeners also is that. Yes, the detection is extremely important, of course, right? You want to stop the bleeding from your institution. But sure. the remediation process and how you actually handle that next step, how do I contact the user? How can they, for example, block, um, unblock this block, for lack of right. a better term, for them? Are they self-sufficient? Or do they have to call in um, you know, and, and wait on hold to try and unblock that card? So it, that, is really, that is a really key point. Right. And what about some, just if I was a financial institution, you know, so a lot of these processes are obviously automated, but what are some red flags, quote unquote, that quote unquote, that financial institutions really should be looking for in either the know your customer process or just, you know, in the, in the detection process itself, when these transactions are coming through, like what would be the thing that should alert a transaction monitoring system that this could be fraudulent. This could be synthetic identity mm -hmm. fraud. Sure. Well, <clears throat> I'll, I'll point to a couple, I guess you could say, some immediate red flags. And, and this could be used across a risk organization. These are both applicable to KYC and AML, also account onboarding or fraud, or even when you're doing periodic uh, portfolio reviews. If you're a financial institution, these are, these are steps I would recommend. Um, first and foremost is a um, one of the big, big, big red flags is slight variations of the same name uh, tied to the same ID or tied to some variation of the same address. Um, you know, maybe multiple iterations of that type of uh, falsified entity. You could say being managed from either a single account, multiple accounts being managed out of a single um, homestead or address. Um, and what can help with that is having a, a type of uh, fuzzy logic matching algorithm or um, entity resolution um, system in place can help you find those missing dots. And what I mean is, let's say, let's take my name, um, L-U-K-A-Y-N. I've also been known as Luke as a nickname my entire life, L-U-K-E. But um, not in necessarily legal documentation, but I'm sure it's popped up in different places. So. If I had, if it could go out and look in the books for that financial institution and say, I may have been referred to as Luke at some point, but Luke and Lucane Hunsaker are ultimately the same person. 
even if he's trying to put you know, LT Hunsaker, et cetera, um, they all are administered through this one device ID, et cetera. So what that can do is paint that whole picture and start to pull together, you could say, that spider web of activity that looks suspicious because there may be investigators listening to this, there may be people who have never heard of entity resolution or, or fuzzy, fuzzy matching or link analysis, but really um, this can be very eye-opening because what you can see on your books are the interactions and the flow of funds and, the, and you could say the nefarious intent of someone who is operating hidden control over a, a organizational crime ring uh, in your organization. And what about regulations? I mean, there are, there's you know new requirements that have come out. Obviously, banks need to know who beneficial owners are and the related parties. So how how do we plan for that or or safeguard against that? Especially when we're thinking about fake businesses. I mean, with the, with the COVID nineteen you know relief package that came out, um, there was massive loan fraud that took place, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But you know, banks are under this enormous pressure to onboard and get money out very fast. But at the same time, you also need to know who the owners are, right? The beneficial owners. So how does that play into, into, into combating synthetic identity fraud? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a really, really good point. And um, I'll, I'll explain on that in a couple of different ways. One, one internationally, but also uh, specific to the PPP. So let's come from a, from a regulatory aspect, right? So we're seeing this being driven a lot out of the fifth and sixth um, uh, EU AML directives, et cetera. And really what this centers around is the beneficial ownership of those businesses or of those organizations. So who has an owner, a significant controlling ownership stake, who is the ultimate owner and being able to identify them um, by name at the end and not behind shell companies, et cetera. Um, that's certainly something that's getting a lot of attention. So knowing who is the ultimate and beneficial owner and who the related parties are. So so it, uh, essentially if an institution does have fake owners, um, of course that's, that's one desired approach. Now we all know unpeeling that onion of regulatory scrutiny has, has been exceptionally difficult. Um, and one of the examples that I saw here in, in the U.S., especially a lot around uh, COVID fraud, were institutions were under such an enormous amount of pressure to get those funds out and quickly. And we can speak to all the variations of percentages of what we think fraudulent loans will be anywhere from 30 to 40 percent when this is all said and done. But um, in essence, it's, there was a, a process where the, the business registrar of that state I guess you could say, had been able to be cross-checked for institutions who were filing for PPP or SBA loans and say, for example, had just been incorporated within 30 days. Now, right, that might be a huge variation of a, a red flag because they should have automatically been excluded, right, from the from the from lending for that type of piece. But also, um, it could have been a fast way to verify number of employees. It could have been a fast way uh, from through the, the, the state tax filings, et cetera. And what I'm trying to basically speak through here is this is also exposing the fact that in a time of a national crisis, even though these funds were, one, extremely well-intended and much needed, I'm not debating that in any way, shape, or form, when you put that out there without the proper authentication and without the proper due diligence or without providing the ability to make that a possibility, um, again, we, the institutions had to rely basically on the good faith of these applicants with the volumes. Um, again, there's there's uh, 
there's a debate there whether or not, but I assume that they, they took a certain level of risk to heart and, and under under enormous amount of pressure to get this out. So again, I think um, I think the long and the short of what I was for the point of trying to make here is that being able to break down those data silos and being able to access this type of information is crucial, whether you're talking about CDD, KYC, account takeover, et cetera, um, being able to share these common risk attributes. And I, I realize I'm talking about uh, a federal program um, reaching out to the financial sector, and that's that's a whole other level of complication. Sure. But that is certainly something that could have helped in this instance. Yeah, and we just see, we keep seeing more and more stories coming out about it. I mean, it's it seems like it's every day. I just heard a, a recent one where there was a family in Los Angeles. It was two brothers and their wives. Um, they have all been mm -hmm. charged in this federal grand jury indictment alleging a scheme mm -hmm. where they submitted at least 35 fraudulent applicant, applicant applications, rather, um, seeking more than like 5.6 million in federal COVID relief. So we're just seeing this quite a bit. And I'm imagining in that case, you know, and it's again, it's an, it's an allegation. They, they've filed an indictment, so they haven't been prosecuted yet. But I'm imagining that they're going to be alleging that they're using synthetic identity fraud in this type of a case. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, um, you know, um, uh, falsifying application records, et cetera. I, I imagine it would have to be, and I'm, I think the, the low-hanging fruit in some of these business loans is obviously the inflation of, of the number of employees, the inflation of the number of years in business, sure. and certainly either the inflation in payroll being paid, et cetera. But also to your point, um, the, the, the tax ID number, et cetera, um, where, where has that, that business or that entity been registered? How long? Um, is there any connection between the controlling entity I don't know, and um, let's say uh, associations with known parties on other applications that don't seem to make sense. I think we'll see a lot of this come out to play in the investigation from the arrears, right? Especially with the aggressiveness that the inspector generals, et cetera, have. have the steps they've taken to investigate this, but also um, what I've heard from my peers um, in my network with some of the investigation techniques they're, they're following to help provide law enforcement with this screenshot of some of the actions you were just describing. So in that sequence of events, that that that, that group in Encino, and I, I just picked up the paper and read about another one um, this morning here in Florida. I, shockingly, I think we're here on the same amount, like 5.2. There must be some sort of ratio of loans to pay out for number of applications. But um, sure. same, same thing, just drastically falsifying all of that information. And I mean, to me, it's accelerated one, it's a very large, once-in-a-lifetime international pot of money that's being contributed to not just by the U.S., but, but numerous um, entities and governments around the world. The barrier to entry is digital, meaning that I have to sit at my computer. That's my way to this. So the, already the risk is elevated. Um, the volumes, it's just a sheer number of applicants um, provide a higher risk for this type of behavior to slip through. Um, and I, I think the combination of that perfect storm really has, has put a lot of this together. And you have that on top of that, not just the availability of the funds and the ease in which I'm applying for it. It's also the fact that given the pandemic and given the economic downturn, there's certainly, um, you know, some, some very relevant factors that might push people to make that decision 
um, in a way they may not have morally uh, necessarily agreed to before. People do fall on hard times during 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 these types of downturns, and um, I, I think it provides more of an incentive or a justification, so to speak, um, because quote unquote everyone else is doing it uh, sure. as well. So I'd be very curious to see what comes out in the um, the aftermath of this over the next few years. Yeah, I mean that's so important. There's there's the human element to it that if you know if I mean there's different types of people and why they commit crimes, but there's also that piece of we are in an economic downturn, and so people are getting creative as to to how um, how they can make money essentially. Um, and some of it's right. unfortunately through criminal activity. I, you know, I think if I guess for you know a final just takeaway here, like if you could give us a couple just takeaways on really how financial institutions can fight synthetic identity fraud. I mean, I think with the caveat, and I, I imagine you'll agree with me, it's never going to be completely eliminated because of just, you know, how innovative this type of fraud is and using the numerous different like personal identifying information on different people mm -hmm. and creating this this fake person or fake business. But what are ways that financial institutions can better fight against this? Sure. Um, so I'll give the I'll give the the quick answer and then move into the more complicated one. So okay. in the short term, um, I, I would completely agree with you. As long as we're reliant on personal personal KI, personally identifiable information, uh, path codes, um, you know, and again, certainly not knock on traditional bureau data. But using all of that information to paint together a piece of a digital face, right? And when I say digital face, what's your digital identity? How does that identity pair back to the real you, the real uh, Lucane Hunsaker lives in, my, in Florida? Um, pairing that information is very important. So um, I would suggest to institutions in the short term to try and move upstream in whatever transaction they're trying to do, meaning um, look for data enrichers such as um, identity verification, certainly good. You can rely on biometrics. There are certainly some alternative identity scoring that's out there as well that you can use to layer in with some of the traditional systems. Now, when, um, when, you're, when you're moving into the detection and investigation stage, again, fuzzy matching logic, uh, link analysis, entity resolution, um, if you're a financial institution looking for uh, fraud or risk vendors, Look for those that can incorporate those type of enrichers I mentioned earlier. So make sure that they can either complement your existing systems. Because um, you have to think about this. Each one of these actions we've been talking about um, tends to start at the beginning, right? So we're talking at the, the entry into the institution or into that broker dealer or into that car dealership, et cetera. Um, if you can point more to those false pretenses, that really will help. And now, there are some medium-term things that are that are certainly coming around. Uh, there is a, a a test pilot right now with the Social Security Administration in the U.S. I believe there's 12 or 13 can, um, active participants in this pilot. It is closed, but essentially it's a real-time check to the Social Security Administration for that SSN. So having that ability to do a real-time check to the SSA has never been available. They're certainly they're testing that now, and I expect those findings to to come out. I believe next year. I'll have to double check the schedule. Um, so that's certainly something that would be interesting future and scale. 
But if you take that one step further and you look at countries such as Estonia, um, I know there's been some rumblings about this in Australia as well, uh, with a public-private partnership. But there is emerging uses of nation-state, government-sponsored digital IDs. Um, Estonia's was a, probably the most bleeding edge I've seen, meaning that they built their own blockchain to conduct all identity, all government, um, et cetera, type of um, interactions on, meaning your your identity is stored in the blockchain irrefutably, um, and you can use it in the country. I was able to follow along as a former colleague of mine actually went through that process, and it was, it was certainly very fascinating to understand that. And then Australia, um, Singapore, and a few other you could say um, uh, Asia-Pacific regions are also following a, a, a very similar approach. So um, I know Australia in the new payment platform is pursuing that again with a, a public-private uh, type of partnership. But those are the type of, you could say, um, national-level solutions that I'm starting to see as well. So if I can leave you with a parting thought, remember, these synthetics always start up, upstream, or if they enter into your institution, um, they can certainly be used for, you know, additional users, uh, the springboard process, but try to keep your door um, as solid as possible. And remember, it's, there's no one silver bullet, right? So everything I've been mentioning is a layered approach to this. So start with the identity and the entity. Um, look for those variables that are bringing more information around um, the type of business they do, um, you know, et cetera. And if, you're, if your business relies on receiving thin credit files, think of and explore the market for some additional enrichers you might be able to use, um, especially, again, if, you're in, if your company takes those in um, digitally. You may want to look for some, some type of enricher in your process that might be able to show you, again, device manipulation, hidden control uh, of multiple accounts behind that device, et cetera. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a one-shot fits all. It certainly depends on the market segment you're in. But I feel that those would certainly be some best practices that can be known and understood. Great. Well, thank you for leaving us with that. And, and thank you for, for really being involved in following this, this topic. It's, it's good to see that we have people like you on the front lines um, fighting this type of fraud. Um, and we will definitely keep an eye on this story moving forward, especially as we learn more and more about COVID-19 fraud. Um, so, Lucane Hunziker, thank you so much from Feeds. I really appreciate your time today, and I look forward to talking to you again about this in the future. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Gina, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Yep. Thank you so much. Appreciate it to you both. Fantastic subject. And as you say, much more to come on the synthetic ID fraud front. Uh, much more to come on the criminal <laughs> side, but fortunately, yeah. uh, some good detection and prevention techniques evolving out there. So uh, really appreciate Absolutely. the insight. And uh, thanks again. Please, everyone, join us again for another Financial Crime Cast. Bye for now. <laughs>